Hey, Scene Vault listeners, are you a NASCAR collector? Well, we've got two great magazines for you. First up, we've got the 75 Greatest Drivers. Last season, NASCAR added 25 drivers to its Greatest Drivers list to celebrate their diamond anniversary, and we partnered with them to help tell their legendary tales. This 116-page magazine is packed with the stories that made each of these drivers the greatest we have ever seen. Printed in full color on glossy paper and delivered to fans inside a poly bag to protect its contents, this magazine will sit on the coffee tables of NASCAR fans for years to come. There are also several different covers to collect, including unique designs for Richard Petty, Dale Earnhardt, Jeff Gordon, and more. We've also got a few remaining copies of the 75th Anniversary Magazine, featuring hundreds of pages of photos, profiles, iconic stories, and much, much more covering every single year of NASCAR. Both of these are shipping in high-quality poly bags to protect your collector's item. Get yours today at dailydownforce.com shop. That's dailydownforce.com shop. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at polepositionmag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey, y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's so, the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. You know, you, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had yeah. worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this, this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good. And then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappeared. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy still when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. <laughs> So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. First race at Texas that we won, I got $2,000. We went and paid our power bill, and we bought an entertainment system. All my life, he has looked at me like, when's this kid going to figure it out? And I had never met the man. I didn't know him from Adam. And he didn't know me. And so it just really set me off. So, And plus, he was my size, maybe a little smaller. I was just anxious. What's the next thing that me and Tony Sr. and Tony Jr. and all of us can do together to make Dad happy? The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. 
Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And I'm Rick Houston. And Steve, evidently last week was not a dream. (laughs) (laughs) The announcement that we made with Darlington Raceway and Kerry Tharp, the president there, that we are going to be able to do a commemorative issue of Grand National Scene for the throwback weekend. Steve, the reaction to that has been better than I could have possibly oh, yeah. Absolutely. I was, I was imagined. I, I was totally surprised. I knew the reaction would be good, but I did not expect it to be quite as heavy as it has been. Well, you know, I was actually in Texas when we made that announcement and I put the tweet together, the social media stuff together that morning at a friend of mine's house uh, who was one of the former flight controllers. And when I hit send, I was kind of nervous. But I sat there and I watched the reaction, and the reaction was just amazing. The reaction was so gratifying about this newspaper coming out. I have seen reactions on social media from a lot of different people, but the thing that really pleased me is we've actually gotten positive responses from people in racing, including drivers. Yes, we have, and we made that announcement last Wednesday and that evening, you and I were on Sirius XM Radio with Dave Moody. That's right. And we had also already recorded an episode of Kelly Crandall's podcast, the Racing Riders podcast, that was released Monday of this week. Like I said, it's been gratifying because it tells me that what we're trying to do here actually matters to people. Yeah, and I agree with you, Rick. And I think the next step is for the commemorative paper to be as good as it can possibly be. And judging from what you and I put together, what we've seen, and Darlington's reaction to what they have seen, that's exactly what it's going to be. Great. Well, of course, it's going to be as good as it can possibly be because I have named myself executive editor. (laughs) Get off the tracks, baby. (laughs) Rick's coming through. (laughs) Copy boy. (laughs) On the heels of that announcement, again, that reaction has been awesome, but I believe that reaction to this week's episode is going to be pretty doggone good too, because we're going to be sharing the second part of our interview with Dale Earnhardt Jr. And if the first part of that interview that we shared a couple of weeks ago was good, I really believe that this part of the interview was pretty exceptional. Absolutely. And as he was in the first part of this interview, Junior continues to be enthusiastic and forthcoming. He loved talking about this. This week, he's going to talk about his first full-time season in the Bush Series, 1998, his first win, which came at Texas. And that, basically, he said in this episode – changed his life absolutely he's also talking about his dad's reaction to all this i think that was the most important thing of all to him i think so too and he was very honest about it and then in our second segment with the news of the darlington deal finally out i thought we might take a look at some of the issues that carried the stories that are going to be featured in that commemorative issue of Grand National Scene. And this week, we're going to be taking a look at the September 6th, 1979 issue of Grand National Scene. And Steve, in that issue, there was a lot more to that story than just David Pearson taking the checkered flag. Yeah, well, exactly. There was a lot more than David taking the checkered flag. There was a circumstances under which he took that checkered flag and circumstances on why he was even there in the first place. Absolutely. Finally. Steve, we have new Patreon support from Jonathan Ellison, Billy Brittingham, Craig Long, Zachary Rabical, and also increased support from Jason Rudd, who just so happens to be Ricky's cousin. Really? Yes, sir. We have four new friends and a family member. <laughs> so guess what issues Jason is going to be getting? He's going to be getting a couple of Ricky Rudd issues of Winston Cup scene. Appropriate. <laughs> For $5 a month in support on Patreon, we'll send you one classic issue of Winston Cup Scene. $10 a month, you'll get two. A few people have kind of stepped up and done more than 5 and $10 a month. So, yeah, that's pretty cool, too. Oh, yeah. One final thing, Steve. I talked to Dennis Warden at Darlington, and we're going to be able to offer these commemorative issues of Grand National Scene to our Patreon supporters. That is absolutely great. They will love it. Everybody who supports the podcast for $5 a month or more will get one of these commemorative issues as long as our supply holds out. And it'll be first come, first serve. So if you want one, climb on board. Help us out. And you can do that at patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast. 
Or if you'd prefer to just do a one-time show of support, it'll be paypal.me slash the SceneBot podcast. Now you go to Daytona and you wind up on your lid yeah. a couple of times. Was that kind of your welcome to the big leagues moment? And you said on your podcast that after that, you know, you had some issues, physical issues. Was there ever a moment of panic after that? Am I ready for this? Uh, I was embarrassed. I'm green as can be. I'm not a driver and never was a driver that figured a lot of this stuff out on his own. If I was going to be good at something, I needed a cheerleader and I needed a couple people feeding me information. I wasn't smart enough to even realize that my, you know, pulling off pit road for qualifying, I needed to get up to speed as fast as possible because that was going to really be the speed I would sustain and yeah. gain as the yeah. run. So I pull off pit road, just moseying off pit road through the gears, and Tony Sr. comes over the radio and goes, what in the hell are you doing? <laughs> Go, get going. Why are you going off pit road so slow? We qualified 30. He goes, you'd have got the damn pole. If we had went off pit road, you got to go. You know, you can't just take it easy. I thought, well, you know, it's got enough power. Once I get going, it'll be it'll be fine. You know, I just didn't know any better. Yeah. That you needed to charge off pit road, all, you know, for plate racing in Daytona specifically. So those are that's like an uh, an example of sort of how over my head I was. Yeah. You know, so we get going and and uh, they're telling me over and over and over when you get into the pits, this thing's got a weird first gear. You're gonna have to really spin them tires or to not choke it, yeah. not cut it off. And they beat that into my brain. And so I'm thinking, oh my God, oh my God, you know, I'm coming into pit road. I'm not nervous about hitting somebody, which I did. I ran into Kevin Pinnell, knocked him over the over the hood. <laughs> I'm not nervous about missing my stall or anything. I'm more worried about stalling the car trying to get out and losing all this track position. And so when I went to take off, I dropped the clutch and broke the yoke off the rear and housing. And we had to go behind the wall and fix it. And they so I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed, and think, you know, this is my fault. They put the car back together and they're like, go back out there and just get some experience. And I'm like, okay. So I get up in there and I'm racing with, you know, lap, lap, many laps down, 30 laps down. I don't know how many laps, that, laps down we are. But I'm out there and I'm drafting with Dick Trickle. And there's a bunch of guys around me and Buckshot Jones is there. That's all you need to say. Right. <laughs> I got upside Trickle. I had a, good, I had a really great car. Um, and Buckshot Jones got went in to draft behind – trickle and turn left and hit me in the quarter panel which turned me into trickle and spun us out and uh i mean it all happened i'm like i don't know how that happened you know i'm yeah. here i am going backwards and and flipping and carrying on and then i got i banged my head on the on the door on the door top bent the door top down helmet bashed into it and uh because when it came down on the left front, I just went into the door. And so mm. I got dizzy at the interview afterwards, and we laughed it off. We thought, yeah. oh, man, wow, I'm dizzy. And I remember in the, I remember laying in the car. They let me work on the car a little bit. I was in, in, in the car the next week under the dash doing some wiring and felt like that somebody would roll the car across the, or across the whole shop. Felt like the car just took off rolling, like somebody grabbed it and was pushing it because we had it on casters. And I thought they maybe didn't see me in there, and they were moving the car into uh, to to make room for another car or something. And I set up, and there was nobody around. The car wasn't moving at all. And I'm thinking, wow, I'm still I'm a little one messed up more and messed up than I thought, you know, as far as my head. And uh, but next weekend, I, I didn't think nothing of it, and uh, went to the racetrack, felt fine. But um, I I think that I was embarrassed, but I did chalk it up to Daytona. I think that it, the moment was bigger than me. And I was in over my head no matter how much experience I would have had. Everybody that goes to Daytona, if you look at my track record, even though we went, we went and won races at Texas, uh, but every time we went back to Talladega and Daytona, we crashed or we, ha we had a problem. Because I couldn't – you got to go – it's like Martinsville. You got to go there and mess it up a bunch before you figure yeah. out how to do it right. Right. No, but I don't know many people if that go to Daytona and just pop, win a race right out of the gate. And if they do, it's – it's more chance than they knew what they were doing. You know what I'm saying? So the first, I remember being so frustrated because Dad was so great at those two tracks, Talladega and Daytona. And I remember going there in the Xfinity Series for the first three or four races and just never finishing, crashing and not doing the right thing to, 
to stay – we'd qualify well, and I couldn't do the right things in the draft to keep my track position. And in 10 laps, I'm running 25th and, and three wide, and then, and then the wreck happens and I'm in it. And I'm like, God, I got to figure out how to stay up there. Yeah. Like, how yeah, do I stay yeah. up there? What's, what am I doing wrong? I couldn't figure it out. It's so frustrating. And then eventually you do. You go to Las Vegas – and I'm watching from the press box, and on that last lap, you're all over Jimmy Spencer. Yeah. Man, I wanted you to give him I a shot. To, too. <laughs> I, if I'd have known any better, I would have. <laughs> I didn't know how to do that. Like, so I got to Jimmy, and I wasn't I wasn't experienced enough to know even how to move him out of the way, if that makes any sense. And I and I thought I gave him enough pressure that that would have moved me out of the way, you know. But it didn't bother Jimmy, and I also didn't know, which I learned years later, I didn't know how big a moment that was, you know. I still, I wasn't sitting there going, man, I can't wait till my first win, you know. I'm sitting there running second going, I can't believe I'm running second. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I have, that was another thing too and that I, that I, that I think is different about me than, than is a lot of drivers is I was sitting there freaking out that I was even running good. You know, because I'd gotten in the car. We had the trouble at Daytona. I'd had such a difficult sort of struggle to find success and consistency beyond you know, before that with all the other racing I'd ever did. Here I am, like running second, thinking, "Oh my God, I don't. How, how did I get here? How do I, you know, how do, do I belong here?" Or I was just overwhelmed with doing good. What did that do for your confidence level? Right. Yeah. You know, I th- that made you know I got out of the car. Tony Junior smiling. Tony Senior smiling, and uh, you know everybody was happy. But everybody did say, you know, man, I wish you'd have moved him. You know, you had the chance to put the bumper to him right there. You know, that's a big race. It is Las Vegas, and I'm like, I don't know. Is it? Is it a big race? <laughs> I'm like, man, second's pretty awesome. I didn't know if I was gonna ha- have a job. You know, this is incredible. I didn't even know if I was gonna have a career. You know, and yeah. so I'm sitting there just thanking my lucky stars. Now, you know, 10, 20 years later in my career, as I got down the line and realized, oh, man, what if I'd have been, you know, really yeah. taken advantage of the situation there and moved him out of the way and won that race? Holy moly. Uh, would that have been a big deal? Tony Jr. had bet on us, gambled uh, at the <laughs> casino, on us, and he taped that to the dash, and I oh, didn't wow. ever see it. I got in the car. That's the thing. I've, they, they, they would do stuff to the interior of the car, put stickers in there, tape you know, gambling tickets and stuff like that, or they put that volleyball in there over that year. I would never see it. <laughs> I'd get in the car, put on my helmet, put on my seatbelts, buckle in, I'm looking in the mirror, and I'm racing, <laughs> and they're like, hey, do you see such and such? I'm like, no, what are you talking about? You know? And he's like, did you not see that ticket in there? I was like, no, what do you mean? He's like, I put a, I put a bit, uh, ga- I, I put some money down on us, and if you'd have moved him, we'd have won X. And I'm like, dang, you should have told me that before the race or at least in the last 10 laps. I'd have maybe moved him to help Tony Jr. win the ticket. So you finished second at Las Vegas. Yep. You finished second at Bristol behind Elliott Sadler. Yeah. Then you go to Texas. Yeah. What do you remember about that? Well, I remember that we weren't, you know, we weren't all, we weren't really in position to win uh, for most of the day. We had a, we got in some contact in the middle of the race and had a tire rub that we had to come fix. Lost a lot of track position because of that. But it was some real smart, pit strategy late in that race that put us on newer tires um back in that series so you know and you had mark martin who was unbeatable in the winn dixie car and if he wasn't if he wasn't there then joe nemechek was there who was unbeatable in his car and you're you know you're just trying your guts out to keep up with those two two cars and uh we got a chance to come down pit road and put on tires and and joe had the confidence in his car not to pit and you know we took advantage of it but i remember for whatever reason uh you know i had run second a couple times and i think that second place at bristol even though that was a great accomplishment for me i personally got out of that car after bristol and was like i'm proud of myself this is a hard race to finish i'm wrecking i'm wrecking it daytona and i'm 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 you know, I'm having trouble finishing and completing races, and this is a tough one. Now, if I can finish second here and complete this race and run the laps and be good and not make mistakes and all the opportunities that you have to make mistakes at Bristol, I'm, I'm making some gains. But I'm tired of running second already. And so I think that's why I maybe was more aggressive to get, to get by 
Nemechek than I was with Spencer. Um, you know, in just that short period of time, a couple of weeks there, I had gained the understanding of, man, I'm going to have to force my way around these guys. They're not going to roll over and let you let you just have it. And he didn't want to. You know, he didn't want to move out of the way. But um, I just remember thinking that, you know, in the middle of that race, man, we're going to have to work hard to get back into the top ten, get back in the top five to have a decent finish, not thinking that we had a winning car and then being, you know, on that late strategy – and when I mashed the gas and took off, I'm thinking, wow, this thing's faster than anything here. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. this, this, I'm the lead's right there and I'm, I'm catching them. You know, I'm coming. Like, yeah. we got to, sh- we, we might win this race, you know? And so, uh, and it all worked out. The funny thing is, is in my mind, I thought, I just need to win one race. If I can win one race, I'll have this job forever. That's all I try to, I'm thinking, I, I just want to win one race and I'll have this job forever. I didn't think beyond that first win you know for whatever reason that's just the mindset that's the mentality that i had and uh i'm thinking as soon as i won it i'm like this ought to keep me employed as a driver for a really (laughs) long time yeah that was the thought it wasn't where's the next race we're going to win or man i want to win the championship or or the the only thought i had was dad's happy and this should do it this should give me employment uh, I won't have to worry about my bills. You can ask Kelly. Up until the middle of 98, I was delinquent on bills. They were giving notices to me about shutting my power and my phone off. Um, we were, you know, we had, we were, I was minimum balance in the bank, you know, keeping that, you know, 200 bucks or whatever you had to have to, so they didn't give you a fine, a penalty. Um, we won Texas, and I got a couple thousand dollars. And went straight to the bank. I was living in a double wide trailer with a buddy of mine. We went well. Actually, we went straight to the power bill. Power. The, there was a strip mall where you paid your power bill. First race at Texas that we won. I got two thousand dollars. We went and paid our power bill, and we bought an entertainment system. <laughs> and that was it. Spent it all right there. And so, um, you know, I, I. It was a big change in lifestyle. It was a big change in my bank account. Immediately, it all was overnight. Um, and. I didn't know what I had. I didn't know what was coming. Uh, that's why Kelly ended up coming yeah. to work for me. Yeah. She's like, "Holy moly, all this is you got you you need somebody cuz there's there was papers and bills and checks and things just piling up." And uh you know, so it was a bit of a whirlwind for me. Well, the first Dover race, uh talking about a turning point. I think you spun trying to pit halfway yeah. through the race, but you came back to win it. And that had to be a tremendous turning point for you because you finished out of the top 10 just four times for the rest of the year. Yeah, we were, uh, you know, I was gaining confidence in me. I was gaining tons of confidence in our cars. Like, they're going to show up and be comfortable. I was no longer, when the race, when the season started, I was thinking, I don't know the tracks. I don't know how the car's going to feel. I don't know how hard this is going to be. Uh, I don't know how how well I'll be able to help Tony Jr. Tony Sr. understand what I need, and then by this point, by Dover, I'm comfortable with the cars. Confident that every time we show up to the racetrack, we're going to be one of the top three cars. I'm confident that if you know if I just don't screw it up, that we're going to finish well and maybe win. You know, and you know, so it started. My anxiety level was way down, and confidence is through the roof. Tony Sr. Tony Jr. are extremely confident in themselves uh no matter what's happening they feel like that their car is the best car there they feel like that there's no reason why that car shouldn't be the best car the fastest car in practice and qualifying in the race there's there's no reason and so that i you know that drove and pushed me they gave me they made me feel like them i started adapting their sort of feeling about our cars and our team we're the best we should win. Uh, there's nobody here that's as good as we are and builds great cars like we have. Nobody's car is as nice as my car, as ready as my car, as prepared as my car is. And uh, you go to the racetrack like that, and and that's that's man in racing that is half of the battle, the confidence. You can you can have the best race car in the trailer, the best setup, um, but if you don't believe in it, you're not going to do what you need to do with it. You're not going to take the risk that you have to take. You're not going to drive that car with the confidence down into the corner that you need. And once I started gaining my own confidence in myself and the car, we really started clicking as a team. I still feel like that there were a lot of shortcomings on my end as a driver, a lot of inexperience that we overcame just because of Tony Sr. and Tony Jr.'s professionalism and 
our teams uh, was stacked. They brought it. You know, they had a. They were really good at putting a lot of great guys around us. Cars were amazing. Our engines from Hutter were just incredible. So much power, and uh, that was helpful. Those engines were we. You know, Tony Senior, Tony Junior bragging on the motors all the time. Gave me confidence in our motors. Believed it, we had the best motor in the garage. You know, you just. You get that ball rolling and and it's and it gets a lot of momentum. So even when we have a stumble, we were still the fastest car before that happened. Um, if I didn't, you know, I made that mistake coming on the pit road at Dover, and it's hard entry, hard pit. Everybody sort of makes a mistake there at some point in their career. And um, man, I was racing Bobby Hillen all day long for that race. He was a strong car there, running the top. I couldn't figure out how to run the top with him, so I had to try to figure out a way to how to pass him on the bottom, and that was kind of tough. Um, because I'd watched him all my life in the 80s growing up as a kid, so it was pretty cool to race him for for, for that for most of the majority of that day. Another tough racetrack, Dover is intimidating, you know. But when you check that box and, and go to that Dover, that Bristol, that you know those tracks like Darlington, running second to trickle at Darlington, things like that, when you when you go to those places and you, you get get a reasonable result, it makes you proud. It it, it makes you, you you feel like man, I, I might I might be able to make a living doing this. You know, this ain't just a flash in the pan here. This could be something long-term. So, Pikes Peak, Tony Stewart gets into you. Yeah. And you wind up in the wall. And I have this memory after the race of being at the back of the NASCAR hauler. I'm trying my best to see inside Mm -hmm. and see what's happening. Yep. The statute of limitations has long since passed. Sure. What happened? So In the truck. Okay. (laughs) So, we got in the truck, and I um, I was standing there with Tony Sr. So, in the hauler. You walk into the back of it. There's this long aisle up toward the front, and then there's a lounge in the front. There's some steps up into that lounge. Me and Tony Sr. at the bottom of the steps. You don't go into the lounge until they tell you to. That's where the officials are. That's where Helton or whoever's going to be up yeah. in there. They'll tell you when to come into that lounge. You don't go up in there and sit down. So we're standing at the bottom of the steps. Wait, we're the first ones for this meeting, apparently. The officials are still coming down from the press box. Tony, Tony Stewart comes in there, and he walks in. And he he kind of is like, man, this is not a big deal, you know. This 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 he's not happy. I'm not happy. Tony Senior's not happy. But Tony Stewart came in with like, we're gonna maybe you know the look on his face like we might work this out. And then about five feet behind him, his crew chief came in, and I can't remember the guy's name. Brian Brian Fraser yeah, Fraser. Yeah, he come in, and when he when the door cracked, <laughs> I could hear him talking, and he was saying things like. Riding his daddy's coattail. Oh, boom. Uh, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was saying things like spoiled brat. Oh, my God. Silver spoon. Handed everything. Oh. And he just kept you going. You should have decked him. He was going. <laughs> he was doing that. He was saying that on the way in. And as he's walking that aisle toward me, he's saying it. And so wow. Tony Stewart and me are sort of standing face to face. Yeah. He's facing me. I went over the top of Tony Stewart and grabbed <laughs> Frazier by the shirt. And Frazier backed up, and Tony Stewart sort of was pushing me away. And his, I ripped Frazier's shirt off. And I swung at him uh, with my right hand to pop him. And as we were backing away, I missed. I, my, I didn't have the length. And you hit John Darby. <laughs> no. And then Tony Sr. jumped in. Oh. Uh, to, now it's a ball game. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I'm trying to hit Frazier, uh, and Tony Sr. and Tony Jr. just kind of grabbing to, to yeah. sort of break yeah. up or pull or holler. Everybody's hollering. But I wanted to hit, I mean, I don't, I don't, I, if I saw, if I saw Brian Frazier today, I wouldn't have a problem. I could talk to him and laugh about it. But in that moment, all yeah. I wanted to do was hit that man in the face as many times as I could. <laughs> And I would, I, Tony Stewart wasn't even in the back of my mind. Yeah. I had no problem with Tony. We raced on the track. I pushed him a lot. I ran into him about 15 times in that race, and he finally popped me on a restart and shoved me into the wall in turn one and two. That's racing. You yeah. know, I wasn't happy about it. You don't never get, you don't never get out of the car and go, oh no, big deal. But I didn't like what that. I wasn't running my mouth to Tony, and Tony running and running his mouth to me. The only person that was running his mouth was this Frazier guy, and I had never met the man. I didn't know him from Adam, and yeah. he didn't know me. And so it just really set me off. So 
And plus, he was my size, maybe a little smaller. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't as big as Tony, I know that. <laughs> Over the last few weeks of the season, you start pulling away from Matt Kenseth mm-hmm. in the standings. Was there a specific point where you begin to feel like the championship might actually happen, or did you not even want to think about that? I can't remember uh, trying to think. Um, I remember more that fee- I remember that feeling more around that second championship in 99 but the first one you know I think I think I started we got down toward the race the, the end of the season I started looking at our difference in points to Matt and started doing the math and feeling more and more confident like man you know as long as we don't have an engine failure or something big like it's going to really give us a, a miserable result to give up all them points that we should be pretty comfortable um you know, and I, I felt like, you know, Matt, I, you know, with Matt, his, you know, Matt was an overachiever in my mind with his yeah. team. You know, yeah. he, they, they did have the, they, they did have some support from Roush, but that wasn't a Ford. That was a Chevrolet owned by Robbie Riser. And Robbie had built that team and, 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 um, you know, they were getting some help, but not that yeah. much help. And, uh, not, not like I was getting. Not, I mean, I had, you know, I had a cup team. Over another garage with part driving it, and it, you know, and and we just we had great engines. I don't know what kind of power Matt had, but he didn't have the power I had. Um, and uh, I think I knew that our resources, you know, were were going to give us the edge and gave me the confidence in those last several races not to freak out, you know, not to panic. I wonder like uh, how Dad handled the 1980 championship, being so close and so tight going into ho- Ontario with Kel Yarborough. I would have blew it you know and well, dad he tried he, t- he tried know, to blow tried it to, yeah. <laughs> i know but <laughs> he did his best <laughs> right um you know but i i had by that point in the career in the season gained so much confidence in tony senior tony jr in the car and the motor and just the power and, and, and the, the momentum that barring any kind of major catastrophe and and you know we were we were in great shape basically all you had to do at homestead was start right and one thing that you said going into that race that I will never forget, you said, I guess it'll sink in once I see the look in my daddy's eyes. Yeah. Is there any way to describe the look in your daddy's eyes once everything was said and done at Homestead? Right. So all my life, um, you know, he's – all my life he has looked at me like, when's this kid going to figure it out? When's this kid going to show me something or, you know – quit disappointing me or whatever it is you know and and i guess as a father you just want your kids to be excellent and you want them to excel and you want them to show initiative and drive and determination and i maybe wasn't showing him what he was looking for and obviously i wasn't getting a lot of the results that i was hoping to get in the car up until 1998 and he was not the kind of person that would say i love you a lot he wasn't the kind of person that would give you a hug or put his arm around you i mean put his arm around you but more in a buddy kind of way and uh when you were failed or when you were hurt or disappointed or, or got rejected by someone, um, he was he didn't have a lot of time for that, yeah. you know, and he knew you were going to get over it. He knew you were going to be fine. Um, and he was sort of tough love and he was who he was. You know, you, what the one, the person, you know, is who he was at home. He wasn't any different. And so I think that, um, I was just excited to finally, I knew, you know, if we start this race, win the championship, I knew there would be a point where I was going to see him later that day and I was going to probably see something new. And, um, I think th- that, you know, I, he was, I saw the pride, I saw the, I saw the love and, and the happiness and joy, um, that I'd hoped I would see. And, you know, I just wanted to, do that. I just wanted to keep doing things that would keep bringing that reaction. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was happy in the moment. We had fun in Victory Lane, and and I just was like, all right, I got to keep doing this. I got to keep, you know, making him happy and and making him glad that he made these decisions, you know, to involve me in this. Um, which wasn't a pressure type of deal. It wasn't like, oh, I got a lot of pressure on me to to do this. I was just anxious to what's the next thing that me and Tony Sr. and Tony Jr. and all of us can do together to make Dad happy. And so, um, but it was awesome. I mean, just being able to, I was doing something that I knew he had done a lot. 
you know, we were celebrating wins. We were celebrating a championship. And we were riding in the back of that truck at Homestead and all those little moments. I've been with him in those moments when he was doing that. It was his own career. I've been, I've celebrated championships and wins and victory circle. And, and being able to be in that moment with him when the win was about, I was the driver. When I was with him before all those years, he was the center of the universe in Victor Lane or, or at the, you know, at the banquet speaking and all. And in those, I'm, I was, uh, you know, when I was at the banquet in 98, I got video, my favorite parts, video of him watching me speak. Huh. My, that's my favorite part of that whole experience was looking down there and watching him watch me on that stage. So, cause I mean, it's just, it's just incredible to, cause he's so, he was so hard to please. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. God, he was hard to please. At Darlington Raceway, tradition comes alive. Here's Bill Elliott out of turn number four. Harold Kinder has the checkered flag in hand, and Elliott takes it and wins the Winston Million and the Southern 500. 70 years of racing at the track too tough to tame. David Pearson wins the 1977 Southern 500. Come celebrate the 90s with us at Darlington Raceway on Labor Day weekend. And Earnhardt will win his second Southern 500. His sixth victory at the Darlington Raceway in South Carolina, Jeff Gordon will win. Mark Martin makes it four wins in a row. To purchase tickets, call 866-459-RACE. Alan Kowicki races off turn number three and back to start finish to take the checkered flag. Or visit DarlingtonRaceway.com. The measure of a career winning a Southern 500. Yeah, baby, Bring the family and relive the history. Richmond gets the checker and Tim Richmond wins the Southern 500. South Carolina, just right. So Dell Jr. gets his shot at a full-time ride in the Bush Series. I, we don't know how long it was before the season started. <laughs> Apparently, it wasn't very long. But he goes to Daytona, and well, <laughs> bingo. Yeah, he winds up on his lid, and I'll never forget seeing that car from the press box going upside down at Daytona. That was definitely not the start that he was looking for at Daytona. Then he goes to Vegas, and he is all over. Jimmy Spencer on the last lap. To be honest with you, I believe that if it had been anybody other than Jimmy Spencer, (laughs) 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 because I talked to Junior on pit road after that race, and he said, Jimmy is bad to get you back. (laughs) (laughs) And then he goes to Bristol. And I think for Dale Junior, what he said in this episode, you know, I think he was pretty impressed with himself when he finished yeah. second at Bristol, but just because of how tough a racetrack it is. Well, plus the fact that he started to realize, hey, I can do this, man. Yes, and I think it told him for himself, for his own satisfaction, that it wasn't just a gift from Daddy. No, absolutely not. He had the ability to make the most of what was given him. And I think once he won at Texas, it was like he never, ever looked back, and in a lot of different ways. I think... He never looked back personally or professionally. He never looked back because now he realized, I am my own man. Yes. And the biggest thing, I think, for me in that whole scenario is just the financial aspect because (laughs) he was talking about unpaid bills piling up and getting notices from the power company that they were going to turn off his power if he didn't pay up. Oh, yeah, getting all that help from daddy, right? (laughs) You know, so knowing what we know about Dell Jr. now and all the sponsorships that he has and all the endorsements that he has, it's kind of hard to imagine Dell Jr. not having two nickels to rub together. <laughs> very hard, very hard. Now, I've been in that situation, oh, but really? <laughs> <laughs> to see Dell Jr. come out of that, I love the story that he told about he and his roommate, first of all, taking the check from Texas and going and paying off their power bill. Right. <laughs> And then going to wherever they got the entertainment center from and splurging a little bit. Well, I guess he felt like when you make the kind of money you did at Texas, yeah, okay, take care of your bills, man, have something for yourself. And that's exactly what he did. Well, you know, he said that he got $2,000 for winning at Texas. 
I think somebody needed to work him a little bit better deal there. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, he paid off his power bill and bought an entertainment system, but yeah, I don't know, $2,000? Well, you have to remember, it doesn't sound like it was that long ago, but it was, and $2,000 back then goes a whole lot further than it does today. You know what I would have liked to have seen? I would have liked to have seen Kelly negotiate a deal for Dell Jr. with <laughs> Dell Sr. Now, that would have been no, a sight to behold. No, no. <laughs> I believe my money would have been on Kelly. <laughs> I think that I would have done the very same thing. Some of the questions that we asked Dell Jr., I, you know, I was pretty surprised by how open he was. But then when I asked him about the incident at Pikes Peak with Tony Stewart on track and then what happened in the trailer. I can remember, and I mentioned this to Dale Jr., I can remember standing at the back of that hauler. And I was trying my best. I was trying my best to see what was going on because I remember Bryant Frazier going past me up into the hauler. Right. I heard noises. Now, what those noises were, <laughs> I don't know. And I was trying so hard to see, you know, because I was used to being able to just go up into the hauler during practice and qualifying day before the race and all that. But to not be able to get in there, oh, it was killing me, Steve. <laughs> it was killing me. <laughs> Tony Stewart was on Dale Jr.'s podcast a few weeks ago, and they actually kind of mentioned this incident, but it was almost in passing. And this was the first time that I had ever heard Dell Jr. say anything about what set him off. Mm -hmm. I think the fact that anything set Dell Jr. off says it was pretty serious because Dell Jr. is not a fighter at all. No. For Dell Jr. to actually go after Bryant Frazier, I think he was took it pretty personal what was being said. Exactly. And what was being said was the whole silver spoon thing. Uh-huh. Oh, you know, when you see idiots on social media saying, you know, Dell Jr. was handed everything and it, people that say that yeah. simply don't know what they're talking no, about. No, absolutely not. If he was handed everything, why couldn't he pay his power bill? Come on. <laughs> and then for somebody to give voice to that whole thing, you know, Silver Spoon, yeah. being given everything, riding his daddy's coattails, that kind of, oh. I can imagine being sure, in Dale Jr.'s sure. shoes. That would be something that would set me off if I was in his shoes. And then finally, Homestead. I didn't get to go to Homestead that year because my wife had had a miscarriage, so I didn't get to go. But I was at the last race before Homestead. I believe it was Atlanta. I remember Dale Jr. saying, it'll sink in once I get to Homestead and see the look in my daddy's eyes. Mm-hmm. And that was such a powerful statement because it gave voice to why I believe Dell Jr. wanted to be a race car driver. He wanted to race for his daddy's approval. Exactly. And it was his father's approval that he sought. And he didn't always get it in the form that most sons do get it from their fathers. Dale Sr. was not a very outwardly emotional type of guy. And I'm sure that he uh, probably recognized how well his son was doing and appreciated and admired it. But outwardly, I'm not sure any of us could have seen it. But inwardly, I knew he felt it. And when Dale Jr. realized he had done it by seeing the look in his daddy's eyes rather than a big hug and a, you know, whatever fathers do, yeah, yeah. Then, then he had it made. Then he knew. Well, you know, Dale Jr. said at Homestead he saw the joy, the pride, the love, the affirmation from his dad. And then Dale Jr. said that he wanted to keep doing things that would bring that kind of reaction. And then he kind of reiterated and talked about how he so wanted to figure out things to do with Tony Urey Sr., Tony Urey Jr. on the racetrack that would make Dale Sr. happy. I don't know, man. I'm no psychologist, but that kind of got to me. That well, really kind of got to me. And I, you know, it's I don't know how many people listening to us have experienced a relationship like that. But in the end, the catalyst for Dale Jr. wanting to do well was his father's approval. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that. And I think in the end, that's exactly what he gained. And Steve, I debated whether or not to tell this story, but Dale Sr. could be a very tough individual to read. 
Right. I mean, I went up to Dell Sr. at the after party at the 1998 banquet. There was a lot of noise and people were talking. I think there was a band playing. But I went up to Dell Sr. and I stuck my hand out to shake his hand. And I told him, I have so enjoyed working with Dell Jr. this year. He's a good kid. He's always been very polite, very open with me. He's always been so awesome to work with. And I just wanted to congratulate you on a job well done. And my hand was stuck out to shake his hand. He looked at me, never said a word, never shook my hand, turned around and went back to... Well... And I... (laughs) I'm like, uh, come on, dude. That was not so f- unusual for Dale Sr. Yeah. Uh, I had the privilege of knowing him when he was just starting out. And that's why I like having you on the show, because you knew Adele Earnhardt that I certainly didn't know. Right. And that a lot of people didn't know. No, and that, that's that's the main reason why. We got to, and we got close because essentially I'd been on the beat for quite a while, but Dale started out, and through Joe Whitlock, who was his PR man at the time, we were able to uh, get to know each other real well and respond to each other, and it was not difficult for me at all to go to Dale Sr. and, and get a decent story, a decent quote, or a decent remark, or anything of that nature. But I could see it with others. And uh, they just didn't have the luck that I had, the opportunity to know him when he was just starting out and uh, just pretty much vulnerable and wide open and wide-eyed about the sport. So, yeah, I can understand that story. I, I, I can. And one thing, though, that you have over me is you were able to see his son race in the Bush Series and elsewhere, come up through the, the ranks and work closely and hard to win his father's approval, all right? You were there. So you saw Dale Jr. in a much different light than I did. Oh, yeah. You were closer to seeing him from the beginning like I did his father, and that was a great thing. Well, Steve, I know what you're talking about, about getting to know Dale Jr. during his two years in the Bush Series, and we were at Gateway. I was sitting in the media center, and my son, Richard, from my first marriage was with me. He would sometimes go to races and that kind of thing with me when he was with us for the summer. And so he'd gone to St. Louis because after the race, we were going to go see a Cardinals game. Richard is sitting next to me in the infield media center and Dale Jr. bursts through the door and he's like, Houston, where's that piece of crap newspaper that you write for? I got to see what kind of crap you've written this week. (laughs) And he was looking for a copy of Winston Cup scene to read in the trailer. And I was like, they're over here, but if you need help with the big words, just let me know. And so we were just bickering back and forth very good-naturedly. And, you know, I, oh, this piece of crap, I don't even know why I bother. Blah, 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 blah. And, I've been there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, Dale Jr. gets his newspapers. He leaves, goes back to the holler. And <laughs> Richard looked at me, and his mouth was agape, and he goes, Dad, Dale Earnhardt Jr. knows who you are. <laughs> and then he goes, and he reads your newspaper. <laughs> that was a very cool moment. And then my favorite Dell Jr. memory ever, I do believe, was the reaction that we got after we asked our last question in this interview. Because listeners, if you notice, we got through his late model days and kind of his early Bush Series days before, you know, when he ran, you know, just a handful of races in 1997. And then this week, we talk about the 1998 season. Well, where's the 1999 season? Well, here's the story. <laughs> we were given an hour. And I understand that. Dale Jr. is a very busy person. He's got a lot of business interests. He's you know, obviously doing right. the NBC yeah. stuff. And he had to go to the NBC studios in Charlotte. And we were on pretty tight timeline. And the guy that was in there actually gave us a 10-minute-to-go right. signal, you know, held up 10 fingers. So <laughs> when he took 10, 15 minutes answering our first question. <laughs> <laughs> but there is yeah. nothing good to come out of all this. You and know, it's from Dale Jr. himself. And it was from Dale Jr. himself. Got down to the very end, and, and we did ask a final question. And then, you know, when he finished answering it, he said, well, do you have one more question? I said, well, you know, I've got several more because we haven't talked about the 1999 season. He said, well, no problem. We'll just do a part two. That's right. From Dale Jr., there will be a round two. (laughs) There will be a round two. Don't know when that might be. And, you know, with him doing the NBC schedule now. So it might be after the season. It might be tomorrow. It might be next week. Don't know. But just the fact 
that he told us that he had enjoyed talking to us. He enjoyed the conversation. And when he looked at the guy that was in the room with us and said, set it up. Yes, sir, baby. (laughs) So at some point, we will have a round two with Dell Jr., and I'm looking forward to that. That This is what happens when it's not media questioning the subject. It's media conversing with the subject. Everything always comes out better. Steve, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com. Poor Brian, he's going through a move right now, and I think he's finally in his new digs, not exactly unpacked yet. So he didn't have a chance to get a description of some of his inventory that would pertain to this episode. But he did tell me that he does have some Darlington apparel, and he also got a collection of Dell Jr. items in recently. Really? Be sure and check the website, speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Check those out. I've already done so, and what he has to offer is incredible. With David Pearson being one of the focuses of this year's throwback at Darlington, when I looked at possibilities that we could include in the commemorative issue, there were at least a couple that I could have run with. David Pearson won his last race at Darlington in the spring of 1980, but then I kind of looked at the 1979 Southern 500. David had won that race, and there was a pretty good backstory. It wasn't just David Pearson crossing under the checkered flag. The spring of 1979, during the Rebel 500, David had come in for a pit stop, and due to some kind of miscommunication with the Wood Brothers, he left without right side tires. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously that wasn't a good, good day at the racetrack. And they actually wound up splitting up after that race. Yeah, actually, I think it was the left side. Because here's what happened. Man, don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. <laughs> well, you never did. <laughs> this is what happened. David came in for a pitch stop, and he was under the impression that the Wood Brothers... We're going to change two tires and not four. Yeah. Therefore, yeah. they had the rights change with oh, the okay. left. Yeah, loosened. I should have known that anyway. Uh, yeah. And David took off because he thought the stop was completed. Well, he got down to the end of pit road, and of course, the left side wheels came off, and the car went thud, just hit yeah. the ground. Yeah. Now, David had heard over his radio words that he thought were go, go, but it was Leonard Wood saying, Whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and that caused the mishap. And, you know, it wasn't long after that. Matter of fact, it was a week after that that uh, the Woods announced that David would no longer be driving for them. Now, David said he thought that incident was probably the straw that broke the camel's back. But Leonard told us uh, on the podcast a yeah, while back yeah, that yeah. was not it, yeah. that there were several under- underlying causes. Now, I have to believe, Leonard, you can't tell me that a team with all the success that the Woods and Pearson had enjoyed would end things on one mistake? Yeah. Well, I think when I talked to David for the previous podcast I did and that we ran on this podcast, he said that, you know, it had been kind of building up. I think it was kind of a marriage that had gone stale a little bit. Right. You know, because they weren't winning quite as much as what they had been. But then you mentioned the interview that we did with Leonard in the memorial episode that we did to David after he passed away last year. He said that even after that spring race, they had kind of gotten back together and talked and said, you know, maybe we won't split up after all. And then somehow Purelater got involved and for whatever reason decided that they didn't want to work with David. Now, I can't imagine. Now, that's a mystery to me. I can't imagine any sponsor at that time that had been with that team and enjoyed the success that they'd had not wanting to be involved or wanting another driver. But it was my understanding from Leonard that it was a sponsor-driven decision, ultimately. Yeah, well, it might well have been. It might well have been. But it is, it is accurate to say that there were many reasons that caused this split. And I'll repeat myself. There is no way, no way 
that we can say that that incident at Darlington was the cause of everything. Not quite. It was not the sole cause. I don't think there's any question that it was, oh, it was the sole cause. I, know. I agree. Also, the other part of the backstory to this race is the fact that David Pearson was driving a car that rookie Dale Earnhardt had been driving for Rod Osterland. Dale had been hurt in a crash at Pocono, and David, <laughs> David wound up running four races in relief of Dale for Rod Osterland. Steve, he did okay. He did okay in these races. He finished second at Talladega. He won the pole and finished fourth at Michigan. He finished seventh at Bristol, and then he won at Darlington. Right. And the circumstances at Darlington all fell David's way. First of all, Daryl Walter was the strongest car in the field. Oh, yeah. Spun out twice in 10 laps. And he yeah. said, "He said, uh, you know, I'm afraid to go home. I might just get a spanking. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. But he ended up 22nd <laughs> in that race, and he was a non-factor. Therefore, it pretty much fell David's way after that. I thought it was kind of funny reading between the lines that right after David won at Darlington, Dell Earnhardt was right back in the car <laughs> <laughs> the very next week at Richmond. Less than a week later, I was thinking that maybe he kind of rushed his recovery a little bit to kind of keep from losing the ride because yeah. that was his big break. Right. You well, know, without Rod Osterlin in 1979, I don't know that we know who Dell Earnhardt is today. Well, it turns out that the plan was for him to return to Richmond. You wrote a sidebar in that issue about David's future in the sport and maybe the possibility of retirement. And you wrote that Earnhardt was in fact scheduled already scheduled right. to return to the car. So I don't know that it was necessarily Dale rushing <laughs> to get back into the car. Although, you know, knowing what we know about Dale Earnhardt and his pride and certainly his desire to make it in the sport. I don't know that he took too kindly. Well, <laughs> to David Pearson winning in his if race you look car. at the timing, it could speak all kinds of comments from the conspiracy theorists. And they say, wow, David Pearson wins at Darlington and Earnhardt returns at Richmond right after that. Now, you got to know <laughs> that Dale did that no matter what his condition would be because he didn't like what Pearson was doing in his car. I believe that if Dale Earnhardt had had a leg amputated <laughs> after Pocono, I believe he would have been back in that car at Richmond no matter what. You know, something else interesting about that race at Torlington, David won by a full lap, two laps. Two laps. Yeah, over Bill Elliott. Uh, now, who? <laughs> who some some no-name kid. Not won a race yet. Yeah. Elliott said, you know, we've come to the track. I think we're 10th. The first time, and then six the second time, and now we're second on the third time. And that means one of these days, we are going to win a race. Well, guess what? It took him four more years. He won the 1983 season finale. Right. So it took him four more years. David Pearson, at that time, was at a point in his career where he actually said in this issue he didn't enjoy racing quite as much as what he had. It had become kind of a business. And I believe that to the very core of his being, he was a racer. He didn't race for personal glory. He didn't race for necessarily the money, although certainly it did give him good things. But I think he just raced to race. And when the business aspect kind of started creeping in and the whole issue with the sponsor and leaving the Wood Brothers and all that. I think David was probably pretty content to just run a handful of races a year. Well, yeah, by all means. And let's face it, he'd been in racing for a long time. Of course, he's no longer in the Wood Brothers ride to having the kind of power that he used to have. So couple that with your opinions right there, and it's not surprising at all that he might want to back away. Well, he said in this issue, I have to admit, I did enjoy winning this race more than any other I've won here. At the end, I thought, I won't have to hide this time. I won't have to stake <laughs> away like I did the last time, talking about the spring race <laughs> where the wheels came off. Steve, this was David's last race of 1979, and his first race of the following year was at Darlington. And, well, what did he do there? That race. Right. He won. Right. Driving for Hoss Ellington. <laughs> Driving for Hoss Ellington won the 105th and final race of his career. And that was a weird Darlington race because it started off with the storms coming and the weather was so bad that finally they had to red flag the race for over two 
hours. And NASCAR came back and said, okay, we're going to restart this race. And when we do, we're only going to run to lap 189, five laps after the halfway point. That race started at 5.30 in the afternoon. And Darlington wow. had no lights. <laughs> Bob, That's, did they have lights? <laughs> that, that is why NASCAR said we're only going to run until we get past halfway. So David was the leader at that halfway point and credited with the victory, of course. And it's his 105th career win, as you said. So, hey, David wins. Unusual race. Steve, another thing that I wanted to mention about this race <laughs> <laughs> is the number of relief drivers that were used in this event. Richard Petty started experiencing ignition problems early in the race, wound up two laps down. He was two laps down by lap 19, so it was not going to be a, a good, good day, day no. for Richard Petty. He pulled in to the pits after about 216 laps. Donnie Allison got in, and 20 laps later, Donnie got back out because I don't think that he could fit in the seat. Neil Bonnet took over at that point. So Richard was having himself an Alabama game kind of day. <laughs> and then Richard got to feeling better and got back behind the wheel of his car on lap 298. And also Donnie Allison, I guess he's back, got to feeling better and went to go relief drive for his Bobby. brother. Yeah. For his brother, Bobby. That wasn't all. Lenny Pond drove for Ricky Rudd. Jack Ingram drove for Benny Parsons. Dick May drove for Chuck Bound. And Neil Bonnet also <laughs> relief drove for Bobby Allison. So Donnie Allison and Neil Bonnet not only drove in relief for Richard, they also drove in relief for Bobby. It was like musical chairs that day. <laughs> Can't tell the drivers without a program. <laughs> well, first of all, it was Darlington on Labor Day. Now, you don't think that could be a very balmy day, do you? Oh, my gosh. There's no kind of hot like Darlington hot. Re uh, relief drivers <laughs> at hot races were, were nothing new back then. The technology had not advanced to the point where they could uh, – cool down the drivers like they do today. The drivers had to be innovative, and if they couldn't take it anymore, they just had to get out of the car. But a lot of them didn't really want to do that. Buddy Baker one time radioed his crew on a very hot day in a very hot race to have a water hose standing by. And they said, what? He said, have a water hose standing by. So they did. And Baker came into the pits. They turned the water on, and he splashed himself all over. Really? Inside that car to try to keep cool. That's the way it was. And, Steve, this issue, the September 6, 1979 issue of Grand National Scene was all of 12 pages. 12. I think old Rob Griggs, the publisher, might have had five people working for him. <laughs> Rob Griggs, in this issue, had actually written a column and he announced plans to increase the number of pages in each issue in 1980 to at least 24. Wow. 20, let's say 24-page issue of Grand National Saint. Where have I heard that in the past couple of weeks? Oh, I don't know. Sounds familiar. Oh, yeah. So 24 pages in 1980. They were going to feature more in-depth coverage of every race, including photos, couple of sidebars for every race, and also there were going to be a couple of feature stories each And week. the price is going to go up, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the cover price was going to double from 50 cents to a whopping dollar an issue. <laughs> <laughs> All for 1980. They were laying the groundworks to hire old Steve Wade. Yeah, things really took off in 1982. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, you and I exchanged a couple of texts yesterday about John Anderson. Gene Granger wrote a column in this issue about John Anderson. You know, he was one of those guys that kind of came and went, and we really don't know a whole lot about him other than what we read right. in these old issues of Grand National Scene. Right. John was involved, I believe it was 81, uh, when NASCAR downsized the cars. He was involved in a uh, frightening accident at Daytona. See his car rolling down the backstretch, and... Uh, John was a victim of that downsizing because the drivers could not get used to these smaller cars at these higher speeds at Daytona at that time. They were frightened. They actually said, this is scary. And John's accident sort of intensified all that. And unfortunately, under those poor circumstances, that's how John got the most immediate attention. But he was a very capable guy in front of the media. And then also in this issue, there was a feature by Gary McCready on Greg Moore, Bud's son. And 
Greg Moore, he is one of the best personalities that ever walked through oh, that yeah. garage. Delightful yeah. personality. Talk with you. But I tell you what, I had more fun with Greg Moore in a different way. Now, oh, you- my God. <laughs> okay. All right. Remember, no, this no. is a PG-rated. No, 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 no. <laughs> None of that. But Greg Moore had their long hair. Even oh, yeah. when it wasn't supposed to. Nobody in the garage. Long hair, beard. It, yeah, I nobody. don't know that I would have wanted to meet him in a dark alley. Oh, man. He would have scared me to death. Nobody <laughs> wanted to look like, you know, that. Especially yeah. in the in the garage area. You can imagine all these good old boys, you know, with oh, yeah. Yeah. flat top haircuts and all yeah. that sort of yeah. thing. Greg stood out. So I went to him one time and I said, are you learning how to play guitar or something or other? <laughs> and he said, no, not really. I said, we need to get a rock group going. He said, how are we going to do that? I said, well, simple. We got you as a front man. You look the part. Yeah. I mean, if you don't look like a rock singer, I don't know anybody who does. The other guy we're going to go get is a guy that can actually play a guitar and sing. And that's old Kyle Petty over there with his ponytail. <laughs> so you two guys be the front men. And I'll be the drummer, and we come up with a name, and we'll we'll see if we can't get ourselves on tour. <laughs> and whatever well, happened to this grand oh, scheme? Oh, it got nowhere. <laughs> but it was something that the three of us would joke about. Greg would approach me and start playing air guitar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I would approach Kyle and start playing like I'm playing the drums and all that sort of thing. And so it was a kind of a ritual we had, the three of us, every time we did run into each other. That's the rock group that never was. Well, you know, Kyle is doing some appearances now. Yeah, still has been over the years. And Greg's just down the road in Spartanburg. Let's get the band together. (laughs) We could have a competition with our listeners to name this band. Well, I'll tell you the name. (laughs) I've got it. I already got it. We all know that Kyle's got some gray in his hair. Greg has not changed his hairstyle. Yeah. Still got the beard and the long hair down to the shoulders, and it's all gray. <laughs> and then there's me. So I can what well, we call ourselves a three geriatrics. How does that sound? <laughs> the geriatrics. There we go. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ray Evernham, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, last week on the show, we mentioned the fact that the commemorative issue is going to include a letters to the editor section. And almost immediately, we started getting submissions. And some of them have been pretty doggone good. And I'm looking forward to people reading those. However, however, we do still have some time to get more letters in. Email those to DarlingtonScene at Yahoo.com. That's Darlington Scene, S-C-E-N-E, at yahoo.com. And those that actually run in the paper will receive a Darlington prize pack. And again, man, some of these letters have been pretty good. Very good stuff. Interesting, I tell you that. No more than 50 words because we don't have a lot of room. Follow us on Twitter at The Scene Vault, paypal.me slash The Scene Vault Podcast, patreon.com slash The Scene Vault Podcast. Help us out there. And finally... Thank you so much to Peter Salino and the team at Centaur Media. Thank you to Jim Beaver and the Down and Dirty Radio Network who have been hosting us the past several weeks. Thank you to Joe Estep for our musical score. Thank you to our Patreon and PayPal supporters. Thank you to Brian Kelb. And thank you to Darlington. Big things are coming at Darlington. Yes, they are. <laughs>